Well, go ahead and take a seat and take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. We have been asking ever since Easter Sunday, what does the resurrection change? That's what John is trying to prove to us in these post-resurrection appearances that Jesus makes to various people. What does the resurrection change? And the answer is everything. If Jesus has not been raised, then nothing matters. If Jesus is still dead, still in a tomb in Jerusalem, then nothing in this world matters. We just studied that in Family Bible Hour this morning. Jesus is not dead. He has been raised from the dead. And since he has been raised from the dead, nothing else matters than him, than following him, than loving him, than trusting in him with your whole heart. John has recorded several post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and each one answers very carefully this question, what does the resurrection change? First, he appears to Mary Magdalene, and he tells her through his words and through his appearance to her that the resurrection changes our relationship with God, it changes our relationship with Jesus, changes our relationship with one another, we're now a family. It also changes our relationship with the world, that's what Jesus proclaims to his disciples in the upper room. It changes our Uh, skeptical views. It changes our unbelief. It silences skepticism, as we saw with doubting Thomas, or more uh, specifically, disbelieving Thomas. And then the question is, at the end of chapter 20, in verse 29, uh, Jesus says, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see, and yet they believe. So you're blessed even if you don't see Jesus, but you still believe in him. And the question that we would then ask is, How are we going to believe in him if we haven't seen him? And that's exactly what John wants us to ask, which is why he says, verse 30, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe. So you don't have to see him to believe in him. These have been written so that you would believe. And two weeks ago, we looked at what we have to believe to be saved. You have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ the anointed one, the king. He is prophet, he is priest, he is king. We need a prophet because we don't understand God on our own. We need God to send somebody to reveal God to us. We need a prophet. We need a priest. We need a mediator. We need somebody who will stand in between us and God because we can't get to God on our own. We are sinful. We need a mediator. We need a priest. And we need a king because our own hearts want to be autonomous. We want to rule our own kingdom. And we need a king to come in and say, look, I'll take over and rule with joy, rule with sovereign gladness in our hearts. So we said at the end of our time two weeks ago, believe, believe he is the Christ, believe he is the son of God, he is prophet, priest, and king, he is equal to God, he is God, very God, and believe that he is who he claims to be so you may have life in his name. We come to chapter 21, and this really is the epilogue. Um, John concluded his gospel in verses 30 and 31. But we come to yet another post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. And this resurrection, post-resurrection appearance of Jesus is for failures. This is for failures. If you guys had a, a bulletin in front of you, the title would be, How Our Redeemer Redeems Our Failures. How does Jesus redeem our failures? I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, I despise failure. I hate failure. I hate failure so much. I hate when I lose. I hate when I mess up. I hate when I fail. 
which is a pretty bad existence because I'm constantly losing, I'm constantly messing up, I'm constantly failing. Remember playing Little League Baseball. Little League Baseball, just having fun. People can't put their pants on straight. You know, you're, just, you're not trying to hit a home run. You're just trying to put the right cleats on. It's, it's just, it's terrible. And I remember coaches, well-intentioned, would say, you know what, it's not whether you win or lose. It's how you play the game that matters. And I remember as a kid thinking, then I don't want to play this game. <laughs> if it doesn't matter if we win, then it's not a game worth playing. Now, I understand the point. Like, we're going to hang out. We're going to have a game night on Wednesday night at our house. I understand. We're going to have fun. There are some games that, let's just have fun. But there are games, if I'm going to put hours of practice and work into this game, and it doesn't matter if we win, then I'm not going to do that. I'm not playing that game. I hate failure. I hate failure because of the weaknesses that it exposes in me. It brings humiliation. It inflicts pain. But more than anything, I hate when I fail because of my sin. I hate when I fail because of something that I have done sinfully and it has brought failure into my life. If you're anything like me, the good news is Jesus is going to speak to you this morning the way that he spoke to his disciples and, and he's going to tell us, I can redeem your failure. That's, that's the reason I'm here. So let's read these verses, John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, and we will let Jesus manifest himself to us in the same way that he manifested himself to the disciples. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they say, we'll also come with you. And they got out, got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach but the disciples didn't know that it was him. So Jesus said to them, Children, do you not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work. He threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them. 
and the fish likewise. And this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Father, we want to see your son. We want to see him clearly in these words. We want to see him manifested to the disciples so we would see him manifested to us. We want exactly what happened so many years ago to happen this morning. We want Christ to graciously spotlight our failures so that we can, with exuberance and with total dependence upon him, renounce self-reliance and find our sufficiency in Christ. God, we want to see Jesus. So we pray, Father, allow your Holy Spirit to open our eyes. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law so that we'd be changed. God, give great encouragement to those in this room that would just say, I am a failure. I don't know what to do. I'm messing up constantly. Could God ever use me? And God, do what your word can do. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. God, if there are those in this room and all of us have the ability to do this, all of us have the proclivity to this, to find ourselves sufficient, to take pride in our accomplishments, to see ourselves as able on our own to do things. God, knock us down. This morning, take every last leg out from under us so that we have nothing to fall on except for Christ. Permeate this church with utter humility so that we would spotlight the sufficiency of Christ. We pray it all in his name. Amen. This chapter is so straightforward. It's so simple. It's very short. We're actually only going to be in this chapter for two Sundays. This Sunday, next Sunday, we are going to conclude the Gospel of John. Our study in John, three years, almost a hundred sermons. We're going to conclude it very quickly. This is the epilogue. The conclusion of the book was chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. John had a prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Here he has an epilogue, and he's really tying up loose ends. He's answering questions. Some of those questions would be, does God still care about, does Jesus still care about and provide for his own? He's risen from the dead. What's happening to the disciples? What's happening to Peter specifically? We saw Peter fail. What's going to happen to John? There was a rumor going around as John is writing that Jesus promised he would never die. What's going to happen to him? And why aren't there more things talked about that Jesus did? We know he did more things. We have the Synoptic Gospels. Why are they not written here? So some questions that John's going to answer for us in chapter 21. And we'll get to the later ones next week. But first, what happens to the disciples, especially after they have failed Christ? The disciples had forsaken Jesus, run away in the garden, didn't testify before a kangaroo court. Nobody asked for his body. Saw the women bold, boldly standing up to follow Jesus to the cross. We saw Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea asking for his body, but no disciples. They had all said in the upper room, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never deny you. I'm not going to be the one to do that. And yet every single one of them did. 
But now Jesus has been raised from the dead. Seems like we have a good ending to the story. They're very happy, but we're kind of at a place of now what's going to happen? What does Jesus think of them now? They were disciples. They were apostles. Are they still able to do that? Have they been disqualified? We find ourselves in verse 1 at the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. So 75-mile walk from Jerusalem to the Sea of Galilee, which gives them days to walk up there. This is a journey of days to get from Jerusalem to Galilee. So my question is, what are they talking about as they're walking? A bunch of disciples, they've seen Jesus raised from the dead. What are they discussing? What memories are popping up in their mind? What scenes will they recall? Maybe somebody on the road to Galilee said, do you remember when it all began? Remember how it all began? We were longing for the Messiah. We were waiting for the Messiah. And we were out on the Sea of Galilee fishing. And this man told us, drop everything that you have and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And we did it. We left everything behind. And we promised we would never leave him. And for three and a half years, we stuck to that promise and then we failed him at the very end. When he needed us the most, we deserted him. We were so certain that we could carry out his mission. We were so certain we would never fail him. But we did. Is there any way he would use us? Is there any way he could use us? Is there any way we are useful now to his purposes? I imagine as they walk, they're happy and they're sad. There's a bittersweetness to, we've kind of disqualified ourselves from being his followers. We failed him. How is Jesus going to speak into these moments? How is he going to care for his disciples? Well, John tells us very clearly he does it by manifesting himself. Verse 1, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples. Manifested. Some of your Bibles might say revealed himself. This is a very specific word that John is using, the definition of which is an appearance designed to produce an impression. This is an appearance designed to produce an impression. Jesus is setting this whole scene up for an impression. He wants the disciples, and he wants you and me as we're reading it, to be impressed with something. Some people ask, uh, how, do, how do you figure out what text to preach? How do you figure out how short, long, sometimes we preach a sentence, sometimes we preach a phrase, sometimes we preach a chapter? How do you know? This one's actually very easy. I want to show you how I knew this is a good section to preach. Verse 1, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples and dropped down to verse 14. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is what we would call an inclusio. This is bookends to a, an entire story, to a narrative. It's bracketed by John for a very specific purpose. And my question is, Jesus... What impression are you trying to make? He's manifesting himself to the disciples to make an impression. And I think he loads it up. This is an amazing account. And he's going to give an impression that will last with the disciples and I hope will last with you for all of eternity. So, Simon, Peter, uh, verse 2, 
and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Canaan, Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together in a boat. They're going to get into a boat. They're in the Sea of Galilee. John gives us a list of disciples, but the first person that he puts on that list is Peter. And the second person he puts is Thomas, both of which are consummate failures. Peter denied, Thomas doubted, and John puts them at the top of the list. By the way, every single list that you see of the disciples in the entirety of the Bible, Simon Peter's always the first person. He's always the leader. Why is that? Well, he is a leader. Verse 3, he says to the other disciples, I'm going fishing. I'm going to initiate this. He doesn't even tell them, do you want to come with me? He just says, this is what I'm doing. And the hallmark of being a leader is you have followers. And the rest of the people go, yeah, well, we'll go too. That's a good idea. We'll go. We'll come with you. And so they go. But here's my question. What is Peter thinking when he says, I am going fishing? What is he thinking? This is what I think that is going through his mind. I may be a failure at following Christ but I know how to fish. I may be a failure at being an apostle, but I'm a fisherman. I know how to fish. So you know what I'm doing? I'm going back to what I'm good at. I don't know how to do this apostle thing. I don't know how to be a disciple. I don't think Jesus is going to allow me into this band of disciples anymore, but I'm good at fishing. I'm going back to what I'm good at. But what happens all night long? End of verse 3 they catch nothing. All night long, they catch nothing. These are expert fishermen. And all night long, they're just mocked by that occasional piece of seaweed that they pull up. Wait, I think I got one. I think I got one. No, it's just an old shoe. Their only catch the entire night long is a huge dose of insult to injury. They fail, all of them, at the one thing that they are sure that they can do. And my question is, is this just bad luck? Just a bad, bad day of fishing? No. John's telling us this is an appearance designed to leave an impression. Jesus is stacking the deck. And it's the beginning of God redeeming their failures. Verse 4. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach... The disciples didn't know it was Jesus. Why don't they know? Maybe it's too dark. Maybe he's too far away. We've seen him interact with Mary Magdalene when Mary thought he was the gardener. We've seen him interact with two disciples on the road to Emmaus when they didn't know that it was Jesus. So we don't really need to know, but they just don't know it's him. We don't need to know why. We don't need to know how. They just don't know. But Jesus speaks. Verse 5, And he says to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? Literally, you haven't caught anything, have you? you? You don't have any fish. It's not the most encouraging thing to say to a group of fishermen, right? I can see you failed. You won't have a fish. If you're a fisherman and you're in the boat, what do you think their answer is? They're 100 yards away from Jesus. I think they probably whisper in their breath, well, you try coming out here. Yeah. You, you think you can do any better? But collectively, they just give, no, we haven't. No, we don't have any. Why is Jesus asking this question? 
He's going to manifest himself and he's appearing with the, the intention of leaving an impression. Why does he ask this question? Because he wants to focus the disciples' attention on their failure. You guys think you're good fishermen? Hey, have you caught anything? No? Okay, that's what I thought. You failed at that. He's exploiting it. He's going to improve upon it. And the first part in understanding how God redeems our failure is that you need to see and understand deeply that you are a failure. You cannot see God's redemption of your failure if you don't deeply know your own failure. Jesus is giving them an object lesson. It's demonstrating what Jesus had taught them just a few nights earlier. Apart from me, you can't do anything. And I think the disciples thought, of course, spiritually, apart from Jesus, we can't do anything. But natural things, I can fish apart from Christ. I can do things naturally, physically, apart from Christ. You and I do not functionally believe, apart from me, you can't do anything. When we try to do menial tasks apart from Christ, at least we can fish. We don't need him to help us fish. But oh, we are far more helpless than we have ever dared to imagine. We don't like looking down the well in our soul of our helplessness. We just kind of go, yeah, we, I need help. We don't like to just stare. I, I am a failure. So Jesus is helping them. Hey, let's take a look. Let's look at our failures. Ultimately, the reason why we fail is because God, in his grace, is showing us that we need him. It's only by the means of understanding our failure that we can be convinced we need help. We can be convinced we are inadequate and we need somebody to be adequate on our behalf. So, Jesus is spotlighting their failure. Have you caught any fish? No. Now he's going to spotlight his sufficiency. Verse 6. Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. Now, never fished the way that the disciples are fishing here. Throwing a net inside. They're over on the left-hand side. Throwing a net in. I don't know how big this boat is. John tells us it's kind of small. But if I'm a disciple, I'm thinking, okay, from here to one, two, three. Over here. That's not the biggest difference that a fish over here is not going to be, and a fish over here, they're just going to be there in a whole swarm of fish. I, again, what are you thinking when you hear Jesus say these words? The first time he says, have you caught anything? Yeah, you tried catching something. No, we haven't. And then he says, cast your net onto the right-hand side of the boat. I think whoever whispered under their breath, yeah, you tried catching something, it's probably, well, why don't you come out and do this? They, what are we going to do? This is what's amazing. In their utter failure, I think they respond by going, we have no other hope. Might as well. Might as well try. Give it a shot. There's no fight left in these disciples. There's no sense of, you know what? We're going to keep on trying over here because we can do it on our own. They have given up. We thought we were good at fishing we stink at that too. We're just failures at everything. And their inadequacy is met with Christ's sufficiency. When they cast on the right-hand side, when they do what he tells them to do, they're not able to haul it in, middle of verse 6, because of the great number of fish. 
therefore. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, verse 7, says to Peter, it's the Lord. This is the Lord. This, he's manifesting himself to us. This is him. When Peter heard this, he put his outer garment on. He was stripped for work. He threw himself into the sea. I love Peter. He hears, it's the Lord, and he just throws himself. Greek word for throws himself is cannonballs himself into the sea. It's not really cannonball, but I can guarantee you he's not doing a beautiful swan dive. He just wants to be with Jesus. He just cares about being on the shore. And this is why I love Peter. His passion, he's a leader, and his passion is contagious. I don't know about you, but I've been to enough churches that I've seen Christianity is so often just the bland leading the bland, right? It's just a bunch of people that hate enthusiasm, that repress anything that smacks of excitement, but not Peter. I am not waiting for the boat to get there. I'm getting off this boat and I'm swimming. And he swims a hundred yards. Why? Because Jesus is there. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus is here and he is, then we should have the exact same passion and enthusiasm that Peter had. Let's not be this repressive, bland, I just want to know. No. You're not going to like heaven if that's you. Heaven is a place of loud music and excitement and joy and exuberance. And I think Peter's heading it up because his Savior has called him home and he is safely with Christ. He's completely absent of any form of self-consciousness. Couldn't care what the disciples think of him. I'm launching into the water and I'm swimming. A hundred yards. I get tired when I run a hundred yards. I can't imagine how exhausted he is when he swims a hundred yards and he stands up on the shoreline. Just think of this picture. Stands up on the shoreline. Just chest is heaving. Hair is dripping, soaking through and through. And he sees Jesus. Now, this is a man who denied Jesus. And he's so excited to see his Savior. Jesus is going to speak to him personally, and we'll see that next week. But here he just stares at the Savior. Verse 8, the other disciples came in a little boat. They're not far from land. They're 100 yards away, dragging in the net full of fish. So what do they see when they get out on land? They see a charcoal fire. We'll come back to that next week. And there's fish already on the fire. Like we just did the fishing, and you didn't need us doing the fishing to have fish. What, what were we doing anyway? Like, we were here to give you fish so that we could eat, and you already have them. Why didn't you tell us that? Hey, guys, come on in. Fish is already here. Why, why did you have us fish? And there's bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Where they are insufficient, Christ is sufficient. Where they failed, Christ has succeeded. They can't catch fish. Christ already had the fish. Jesus commands, bring the fish which you have now caught. Guys, I'm not going to put them to waste. I'm going to put them to use here. Bring them. So Simon Peter does that. Verse 11. This is, by the way, the verse where we get a picture of Peter being really burly and strong because he's going to drag the net to land 
by himself full of large fish, and there's about 153 of them. These fish are around two pounds, sometimes up to two pounds per fish. So it's about 300 pounds that he's dragging in all by himself. He's a big dude. He's a leader. And I think at this point, when the disciples gather on shore and they see a charcoal fire and they see the fish, I think it clicks. And the reason why I know that they're getting this impression, they're getting what God is trying to teach them, is because of what John says. John tells us that Peter pulls in this net of large fish, verse 11, that totals 153. And although there were many, the net was not torn. Why 153? There's some incredible and I mean that in the right use of that word, unbelievable ways that people try to splice up 153. Let me give you just a couple. These are hysterical. Jerome, and these guys are all like lovers of Jesus, amazing Bible-believing theologians. Jerome, he said that there are a total of 153 species of fish in the world so this is an analogy of a fruitful ministry. You're going to get every single people from every tribe tongue. I just Googled 15,304 species of fish, and we're finding new ones all the time. So <laughs> sorry, Jerome. Missed it by a couple thousand. Augustine. This one's good. Augustine. If you add up consecutively, and there's a word for this in math where you just, you know, one plus two, add to that three, add to that four, add to that five, you go all the way up to 17, you get the number 153. So 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4, all the way up to plus 17, you get 153. 17 equals 7 plus 10. 10 commandments, 7 spirits of God. That's it. <laughs> Literally, that's what he wrote. Sorry, Augustine, that doesn't work. Gregory the Great, 17 times 3, 3 is the number of the Trinity, equals 51, times 3, which is the number of perfection, equals 153. Uh, this is another really good one. A calculation of this number, somehow, kind of like what Gregory did, gets us to 666, which this person claimed is the number of Satan, which isn't quite true. And so, boom, Satan's caught in the net and thrown away. We caught Satan. Like, people try so much. I think 153 is telling us that what Jesus was wanting to do, leaving an impression that would never go away, that's what happened. That's what happened. That's why John says, wait, how many fish did we catch? 150? He's never going to forget that. With every single fish, okay, one, two, every fish that they're counting, they're receiving a, a fresh, a new object lesson that apart from Christ, you can do nothing but with him, you can do everything. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. But none of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord, but they're wondering, you look different, what's happening? And have breakfast, what's going on here? The, the reason why this is, they have to pause here is because this is a man who has been raised from the dead. We saw him die. He has a resurrected body. And just like our brother Marty said, maybe, maybe he's a ghost. Maybe he's caspering around us. And he tells us, let's eat breakfast. The ghosts don't eat, but he's going to eat. They know it's the Lord. How does this resurrection body work? 
Well, Jesus comes, takes the bread, gives it to them, takes the fish, they eat. And this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Takes the bread, gives it to them. I wonder if that just snaps them back to the upper room. Take this, eat. Remember my body was broken for you? Now it's whole. It's whole and I can eat. It's a picture of our resurrected bodies one day. This is the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples. What's the point of all this? What's the point of this account? Short, simple, straightforward. Many implications we can draw. One, one just overarching implication. Disobedience always brings separation. Jesus had told the disciples, when I have been raised from the dead, go meet me in Galilee on the mountain. Go meet me on the mountain. Go hang out. You know where you're supposed to go. And they're not there. They're on the sea. Disobedience always brings separation. They should have obeyed. They weren't. And they're separated from Christ. But obedience brings relational intimacy and fellowship. Once they do what Jesus tells them to do, throw your net over, they're brought back together. And they enjoy intimacy with him yet again. But I want to let John be our guide. John told us that Jesus is manifesting himself for the purpose of an impression. It was designed. This whole thing was a setup designed by Jesus to leave an impression, and I think there are two. So as we wrap this up, two impressions that this story is supposed to leave on our minds as it did on the disciples. Number one, impression number one, to be useful in the service of Jesus, you must renounce self-reliance. To be useful in the purposes and the service and the work of Jesus, which I know that you want to be, you must renounce self-reliance. You must be crushed. You must be destroyed in your self-sufficiency. Your self-sufficiency needs to be crushed, and your heavenly Father knows that in order for you to be useful, you need to be crushed, so he graciously dispenses the medicine needed to show you this, namely failure. Here's the medicine designed to show you you need somebody else's help. When you fail, you feel your need for him afresh. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, whenever God means to make a man great and to use him greatly, he always breaks him into pieces first. Can I just ask a question? Are you in a season of crushing right now? Are you in a season where you're sitting down in these chairs right now and you're thinking, man, I did not need a sermon on how I'm a failure because I know I'm a failure. If you're in a season of crushing right now, don't resist it. God is setting you up for amazing use, but you need to let God devastate you so that you can finally be useful for him. Failure is God's gift of grace. Kent Hughes says it this way, failure creates the poverty of spirit that in turn makes us fit receptacles for the blessings of the kingdom of God. Failure engenders humility. Humility dethrones self-reliance. And all we can do is surrender ourselves completely to the adequacy of Jesus. And then, when he accomplishes great things using us, there is no competition for glory. The catch of fish, as it were, is owing exclusively to him. Jesus is plundering the failure of his disciples. He loves his disciples. And so he's plundering their failure to show them, you need me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. One pastor says, when God wants to do an impossible task, 
he takes an impossible man and crushes him. He takes an impossible man, crushes him, and makes him fit for the use that he would have him for. You and I need to pray this morning, God, please crush me so I can be used by you. Please devastate me so that I rely on you alone, humbly renouncing self-reliance. Are you predisposed to self-sufficiency? If you are a man or a woman, the answer is yes. If you are a human being, you are predisposed to self-sufficiency. One telltale sign of this, that you rely on yourself more than you should. When was the last time you said, help me to somebody in this church? Help me. I need help in parenting. I need help in being a husband. I need help in being a, a wife or a mom. I need help in disciple making. I need help in... When was the last time you said, help? I don't know. I don't know how to do anything. Help me. How frequently are you aware of your inadequacies? Or do you feel that you, you know enough to get by on your own? To be useful in the service of the Lord, you must renounce self-reliance completely. Number two, impression number two that I believe these disciples are getting and I think we should get as well. You must rely upon Jesus completely. So renounce self-reliance and rely on him absolutely, comprehensively rely on him. Positively, we can say it this way, you need him. You need him absolutely, comprehensively. Apart from him, you can do nothing. But negatively, he doesn't need you. God doesn't need you. And until you recognize this, you will never rely on him fully. He didn't need their catch of fish. They haul this huge net onto land. Here we go. We've got some food. And he says, oh, um, I already went to Costco. I already got it. Sorry, you don't, I don't need your food. Their catch isn't without value. But at the end of the day, he's not dependent on it. He is the actual cause of their catch. Brothers and sisters, the success of the kingdom of God is not dependent upon us. It doesn't turn on our abilities. God doesn't need us. We need him. Who empowers you to preach the gospel? Who empowers you? Who strengthens your hands to serve him? It's God who does that. Now, we work hard. We work, Philippians 2. We work because God's working through us. We work but we do so in the power of Jesus. God didn't make, Jesus didn't say, hey, fish, jump into the boat. The disciples had to do work, throw the net over, haul the fish in. But the only way that their work would be successful is because of Jesus working through them. God is no way dependent, is in no way dependent upon us. If we do not seek to be used by him, then he'll just use a donkey like, Numbers 22 with Balaam. Let's just use something else. The rocks will cry out if he needs them to. He doesn't need us to do something. He uses us. So here's, what does this say about our service in the work of Christ? Our tireless counseling, discipleship, our evangelism. It says that those things are not our gifts to God. How many times do you hear that? I'm giving God a gift of my time, my service, my energy. Counseling, discipleship, evangelism, that's not us giving a gift to God. 
counseling, discipleship, and evangelism is God giving us a gift. The work of ministry is God giving us a gift. Depend on me and watch me do wonders. He doesn't use you because he needs you. He doesn't use me because he needs me. He uses you and he uses me because he loves us. And he wants to show us that we need him. And when we see that he's the giver, the giver gets the glory. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show what? We're just jars of clay. We are not able in our own ability. We're not able in our own successes. We're not able in our own power. We have the treasure of Christ in jars of clay to show what, Paul? To show that the surpassing greatness of the power will be from God and not from ourselves. If we do anything that's awesome or successful or valuable, it's because Jesus did it, not us. Now, again, if you're sitting here and you say, I most certainly, readily admit I'm a failure. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I'm not that bad. I, I, I'm, I'm doing okay. Let the impression of Christ that he gave to his disciples fall upon your heart. You cannot do anything until you renounce self-reliance and you rely completely on Christ. Apart from him, you can do nothing. You can't catch fish apart from him. But you might be sitting here today and you might be saying, I know, I know I failed. I know I'm a failure. I don't need another spotlight. First of all, I would say the spotlight is God's grace. Just reminding us yet again, we need him. But if you recognize you're a clay pot, you, you're a jar of clay, you have been crushed, you've been destroyed, you've been devastated by our gracious God, and you sit in pieces asking the question, what do I do now? What do I do now? Jesus is going to tell us, but you have to come back next week. Father, thank you so much for the spotlight of your grace that would shine forth into our hearts to show us we need a savior. We saw it two weeks ago. We need a prophet. We need a priest. We need a king. We have declared our inadequacies on every level, but so often we split it up into that false dichotomy of spiritual and secular. Apart from, the, apart from you, we can't do anything of worth spiritually, but there's just mundane secular things that don't really matter. We don't really need your help for. No, you can't catch fish apart from Christ. God, help us to believe fully, deeply. Apart from you, we can do literally nothing. You give life, you give breath. And you don't need us. We need you, and you graciously use us because you love us. God, may the manifestation to the disciples so many years ago leave an impression upon our souls today changes from the inside out as we renounce self-reliance and throw ourselves at the mercy of Christ and his all-sufficiency. And may that lead us always to cry out, hallelujah, what a savior. We pray in the name of our matchless king. Amen. Let's stand together.